The Complete Norse Mythology, adapted by Kevin Crossley Holland, music by Mats Vent, read by Tom Harris. Part 4 The Lay of Grimnir Raudung, king of the Goths, had two sons, Agnar and Girod. One day, when Agnar was ten winters old and Girod eight, the brothers gathered their tackle and went out rowing in the hope of landing some fish. But soon the wind began to bluster, and the boys were driven so far out to sea that they lost sight of land. The night shadow grew long, and in the darkness the small boat tossed and spun and was smashed to pieces on a rocky shore. Standing bedraggled in the darkness, with waves breaking around them, Agnar and Girod had not the least idea where they were. Next morning, the two boys found a poor peasant and stayed with him and his wife through the winter. The woman busied herself with Agnar, and the man looked after the younger, Girod, and taught him many things. They often walked over the land together, and what they said to each other only they knew. When the spring came, the peasant gave Girod the new boat that he had carved, carpentered, and pitched during the winter. Then one day the man and his wife walked with the boys down to the shore, and the man took Girod aside, put an arm round his shoulders, and had a few words with him. Agnar and Girod stepped aboard and helped by a fair wind, and acting on the advice the couple had given them, they had the good fortune to fetch up again at their father's landing stage. Girod was in the prow of the boat. He snatched the oars and jumped out. Then he gave the boat a great shove and yelled, Go where the trolls will get you! His elder brother, Agnar, and the little boat drifted back out to sea. When Girod walked into King Hraudung's hall, he found that his father had died during the winter. He was surrounded by a great company, eager to know where he had been, marveling that he had come back, shaking their heads when they heard from Girod that his elder brother, Agnar, heir to the throne, had been drowned months before. Then Girod was acknowledged as king of the Goths, his father's retainers now swore loyalty to him, and great things were expected of him as Raudung's son, all the more so after such a wondrous return. But the older Girod grew, the greater his faults became. It was not long before his nature, his sudden fits of anger and his cruelty and tyranny became known throughout the Norse lands. Odin and Frigg sat in the high seat, Klidskjalf, looked out over the worlds. Do you see Agnar? said Odin, your foster son. He's coupling with a giantess in a cave. He's fathering brutes. But my ward, Girod, is a king. He rules over a great country. He's so miserly, Frigg replied, that if guests visit him when he is already entertaining, he pretends to welcome them and then has them tortured. That is nothing but vile slander, said Odin. Odin and Frigg agreed to put things to the test, and Frigg swiftly sent her maidservant Fula to Midgard with a message for Girod. Beware, said Fula, of a magician who has come to your country and means to lay a spell on you. You will know him in this way. Even the fiercest dog will not weep at him. Now, in fact, it was a slander that Girod was unwelcoming. 
For all his untrustworthiness, his moods and his violence, he was generous and kept an open house. All the same, he heeded Fula's warning and told his followers to detain the traveler whom no dog would attack. It was not long before this man turned up at Girod's Hall. He wore a dark blue cloak and said his name was Grimnir, the Hooded One. That, however, was all Grimnir would say. When he declined to explain where he had come from or where he was going, or to declare his purpose, or to exchange any other common courtesies, Girod became angry. He remembered Fula's warning. If you do not speak, he said, you must have reason not to. Still, Grimnir said nothing. If you will not speak of your own free will, he said, I will make you speak. But still, Grimnir said nothing. Then the king had Grimnir trussed and slung between two roasting fires, like a pig on a spit. Until you talk, said Girod. Grimnir hung between the fires for eight nights and said nothing. King Girod had a son, ten winters old, called Agnar after his brother. Everybody loved him. His father, the king, the retainers and their ladies, the servants and the court. When he saw how Grimnir was suffering, he suffered with him. And when everyone else in the hall was drunk and snoring, Agnar approached Grimnir and offered him a brimming horn. He said his father was wrong to torture Grimnir without cause. Grimnir gratefully drained the horn. The fires had crept so close that they singed the cloak on his back. Then Grimnir began to talk. Fall back, fire. You are too fierce. My cloak is smoldering. Flames scorch the fur. For eight nights now I've waited here, and I've been ignored by all except Agnar. Girod's son will be hailed as ruler of all the Goths and Burgundians. Greetings, Agnar. The Lord of Men greets you. You'll never be better rewarded for the gift of a single drink. Listen now. Where gods and elves live, the land is hallowed, and Thor will live in Thrudheim until all the gods are destroyed. The other gods have halls too. The first is called Idalir. Dales where ewes grow, and Ul lives there. The second is Alfheim, where the light elves live. The gods gave that place to Fry when he cut his first tooth. The third is called Valeskjalf, Hall of the Slain. One god built it for himself, and with their own hands the others thatched it with silver. The fourth is Sakvebek, the sinking floor. It is lapped on all sides by cool, murmuring water, and there, every day, Odin and Saga drink joyfully from gold goblets. The fifth is Gladsheim, home of gladness, and Valhalla stands nearby, vast and gold-bright. Odin presides there, and day by day he chooses slain men to join him. Every morning they arm themselves and fight in the great courtyard and kill one another, Every evening they rise again, ride back to the hall, and feast. That hall is easily recognized. Its roof is made of shields, and its rafters are spears. Breastplates litter the benches. A wolf lurks at the western door, and an eagle hovers above it. And Thrymnir, the cook, smutty with soot, boils the boar, Sehrimnir's flesh, in a great blackened cauldron. That is the finest of all food though few men get to taste it. 
The war father feeds his wolves, Freki and Giri, with hunks of meat, but wine alone is always enough for Odin's own needs. Every morning the two ravens, Hugin and Munin, are loosed and fly over Midgard. I always fear the thought may fail to wing his way home, but my fear for memory is greater. The torrent Thund roars behind Valgrid, Valhalla's outer gate, and the sun, the fish of the wolf, dances in the water. The river looks so deep and wild that the slain fear they will not be able to wade across it. Behind Valgrind are the sacred inner doors, and though the gate is age-old, few know how to bolt it. Valhalla itself has 540 doors, and when the time comes to fight against Fenrir, 800 warriors will march out of each door shoulder to shoulder. The sixth is Thrymheim the place of uproar set into the mountains. That's where the great giant Thiazi lived. Now it's owned by his daughter, Fair Skadi. She was Njord's bride. The seventh is Bredeblik, broad splendor. Baldur has set up his hall there in beautiful country, blessed and untainted by any evil. The eighth is Himenbjorg, the cliffs of heaven, and Heimdall is the master of it. The watchman of the gods sits in his fine hall drinking mead. The ninth is Folkvang, the field of folk, and Freya decides who shall enter Sesrumnir, the hall there. Every day she shares the slain with Odin. The tenth is Glitnir. It has pillars of red gold and its roof is inlaid with silver. That's where Forseti is most often found, sitting in judgment and resolving strife. The eleventh is the harbor Noton, and Njord, blameless ruler of men, presides there in his high-timbered temple. The twelfth is Vidi, where Vidar lives, a land of long grass and saplings. But that brave god will leap down from his steed when he has to avenge his father's death. The goat grazing outside Valhalla is called Hadron. She nibbles the shelterer Leirad's branches, and every day she is milked and fills a great pitcher with fine, clear mead. That pitcher seems quite bottomless. And the deer wandering outside Valhalla is Oakthorn. He nibbles the branches of Leirad too, and from his horns a stream drops into Fergomir, the roaring cauldron. That is the spring from which runs every river in the Nine Worlds. Listen to their names. Slow and broad. Sacred and Aiken, cool and loud bubbling, battle defiant, Fjorn and Rin and Renandi, Gipel and Gopal the torrent, old and spear teeming, Vin and Hall and Thal, Grod and Gunthorin. These are the rivers that make their way across the fair fields of Asgard. But that is not all. Vin and Vegsvin know where to go, Neat and Nott, and the river that sweeps people away. Non and Hron, Slid and Hrid, Silg and Ilg, Vid and Van, Vond and Strond, Yol and Leipt. They are the rivers that course through Midgard and cascade from the Middle Earth straight into Hell. Then the gods go each day to meet in council at the well of Urd. Thor has to wade across the rivers Kormt and Ormt, and the two Kerlaugs. 
All the other gods gallop over Bifrost, and their steeds are called joyous and golden, shining and swift, silver-maned and sinewy, gleaming and hollow-hoofed, and gold-maned and light feet. The ash tree in Drasil has three roots. One is embedded in Niflheim, another in the world of the frost giants, the third in Midgard. All day and every day the squirrel Ratatosk scurries up and down its trunk. He is carrying insults between the eagle perched in the topmost branches and the serpent Needhog, the corpse sucker in Niflheim. Four hearts throw back their heads and stretch to nibble the tender topmost twigs. They are Dain and Dvalin, Donair and Drurathor. And underneath Yggdrasil are more serpents than a slow-witted man would dream of. Goin and Moin, the sons of the gnawing wolf, Grabak and Graforth, the bewilderer and the bringer of sleep. They will gnaw at the roots of the tree until the end of time. Yggdrasil suffers greater hardship than men realize. The deer crop its crown, Deedhog gnaws the roots, and the trunk itself is rotting. In Valhalla, Shaker and Mist, Axe time and raging taken in turn to bring me my brimming horn, and nine other Valkyries bring ale to the slain warriors. Their names are Warrior and Might, Shrieking, Host Fetter, and Screaming, Spear Bearer, Shield Bearer, Wrecker of Plans, and Kin of the Gods. Arvak, the Early Waker, and Alsvid, All Swift are the names of the steeds whose wearisome work is to drag the sun across the sky. Long ago the gods took pity on them and put bellows under their yokes, and in front of the sun like a shield stands Svalin. Should he let his guard slip, the mountains and the sea would burst into flames. Skol is the wolf on the tail of the sun, and he will chase her until at last he runs her down in iron wood. And Hati, Rodvitnir's son is the wolf in pursuit of the moon. The earth was made from Ymir's flesh and oceans from his blood. The gods made the hills out of his bones and trees from his hair, and the sky dome is his skull. They used his eyebrows to build the mountain wall, Midgard, as a safeguard for men, and out of his brain they shaped the welling dark clouds. Ul and the other gods will smile on the first man to reach into these flames. They could all look through the vent and see my plight if someone would move that cauldron aside. Long ago the sons of the mighty dwarf, Ivaldi, made Skid Bladner, best of all ships. It was a gift for Fry. Likewise, Yggdrasil is the finest of trees, Odin is the greatest of gods, and Slepnir the swiftest of steeds. Bifrost is the bridge of bridges, and Bragi the best of wordsmiths. Hobrok is the finest hawk, and Garm the fiercest hound. I have raised my face to the gods, and they have heard me, all of those who sit and drink at Aegir's banquet. I will tell you my names. I am Grim. I am Gangleri. I am Raider, and the Helmeted One. I am the Pleasant One, and the Third. I am Thud and Ud. I am Deathblinder and the High One. I am Sad and Svipal and Sangatal. I am Glad of War and Spear Thruster. I am One-Eyed, Flame-Eyed, Worker of Evil. 
I am Fjolnir and Grimnir the Hooded One. I am Glapsvid and Fjolsvid. I am Deep Hood and I am Long Beard. I am Sigfod and Hrikund. I am All Father. I am Atrid and the Cargo God. I have never been called by one name alone since I first showed myself in Midgard. In Girod's Hall, I am known as Grimnir, and Asmund knows me as Gelding. I was called Keo Ruler when I traveled on a sledge, and at the Council of Gods I am called Thror. Vidur is my name when I go into battle, and the gods have known me as Justice High, Fulfiller of Desire, Shouter, and Spear Shaker. Gondlir, the Wandbearer, and Grey-Bearded Harbard. I took the names of Svidur and Svidrir to deceive the giant Sokrimir. I slew him, Midvitnir's famous son. The god turned his head from the young Prince Agnar and turned his terrible gaze on King Gerod. You are drunk, Gerod. You've drunk yourself stupid. Think of all you've lost. Neither I nor any of my slain warriors will raise a hand to help you now. How little you have acted on all I once told you. The messenger you trusted betrayed you, and now I see my friend's sword bared and shining with blood. Yig the Terrible One will soon lay claim to your pierced body, for your life has come to an end. The Norns have nothing but death to offer you. Look at me. I am Odin. Draw your spear against me if you dare. Now I am Odin. Once I was the terrible one, the thunderer, the wakeful, the shaker. I was the wanderer and the crier of the gods. I was father and bewilderer and bringer of sleep. All these names are one name. They are names for none but me. King Girod sat and listened. His sword lay across his lap half-sheathed. But when he heard his guest reveal that he was Odin, he leapt up to release him. But the sword slipped from the king's hand and fell hilt first to the ground. And Girod stumbled and fell on his sword so that it skewered and killed him. Odin vanished then. And Agnar became king and ruled for a long time. The Necklace of the Breezings the night was almost over. The sky was green and gray in the east, and snowflakes were ghosting around Asgard. Loki, and only Loki, saw Freya leave Susrumnir. Her cat slept undisturbed by the hearth. Her chariot lay unused. In the half-light, she set off on foot towards Bivrost. Then the sly one's mind was riddled with curiosity. He wrapped his cloak about him and followed her. The goddess seemed not to walk so much as drift over the ground. She glided through sleeping Asgard, her hips swaying as she made her way over the rainbow that trembled and danced around her. The snow veils of Midgard beneath were dazzling in the rising sun. Dreaming of gold, lusting after gold, Freya crossed a barren plain, and Loki hurried behind her. She picked her way across a twisting river, silenced by ice, she passed the base of a giant glacier, chopped and bluish and dangerous. 
and at the end of the short hours of daylight she came to a group of huge rounded boulders, jostling under the shoulder of an overhanging cliff. Freya found the string-thin path that led in and down. Her eyes streamed from the cold and her tears fell as a small shower of gold in front of her. The path became a passage between rock and rock, and she followed it until it led into a huge, dank cavern. There the goddess stood motionless. She could hear water dripping into rock pools and the movement of a small stream coursing over rock. She listened again, and then she heard the sound of distant tapping, and her own heart began to beat faster, to hammer with longing. The goddess sidled through the dismal cave. The sound of the tapping, insistent yet fitful, grew stronger and stronger. Freya stopped, listened again, moved on. At last she stopped, eased her way down a narrow groin, and stepped into the sweltering smithy of the four dwarves. Alfrig and Valin, Berling and Greer. For a moment Freya was dazzled by the brilliance of the furnace. She rubbed her eyes and then she gasped as she saw the breathtaking work of the dwarves. A necklace, a choker of gold incised with wondrous patterns, a marvel of fluid metal twisting and weaving and writhing. She had never seen anything so beautiful nor so desired anything before. The four dwarves, meanwhile, stared at the goddess. She shimmered in the warm light of the forge. Where her cloak had fallen apart, the gold brooches and jewels on her dress gleamed and winked. They had never seen anyone so beautiful, nor so desired anyone before. Freya smiled at Alfred and Valen and Berling and Greer. I will buy that necklace from you, she said. The four dwarfs looked at each other. Three shook their heads and the fourth said, It's not for sale. I want it, said Freya. The dwarves grimaced. I want it. I'll pay you with silver and gold. A fair price and more than a fair price, said Freya, her voice rising. She moved closer to the bench where the necklace was lying. I'll bring you other rewards. We have enough silver, said one dwarf. And we have enough gold, said another. Freya gazed at the necklace. She felt a great longing for it, a painful hunger. Alfrig and Valen and Berling and Greer huddled in one corner of the forge. They whispered and murmured and nodded. What is your price? asked the goddess. It belongs to us all, said one dwarf. So what each has must be had by the others, said the second leering. There's only one price, said the third, that will satisfy us. The fourth dwarf looked at Freya. You, he said. The goddess flushed and her breasts began to rise and fall. Only if you lie one night with each of us will this necklace ever lie round your throat, said the dwarves. Freya's distaste for the dwarves, their ugly faces, their pale noses, their misshapen bodies and their small, greedy eyes was great. But her desire for the necklace was greater. Four nights were but four nights. The glorious necklace would adorn her for all time. The walls of the forge were red and flickering. The dwarf's eyes were motionless. As you wish, murmured Freya shamelessly. As you wish, I am in your hands. Four days passed. 
Four nights passed. Freya kept her part of the bargain. Then the dwarfs, too, kept their word. They presented the necklace to Freya and jostled her and fastened it around her throat. The goddess hurried out of the cavern and across the bright plains of Midgard, and her shadow followed her. She crossed over Bivrust and returned in the darkness to Sesrumnir. And under her cloak, she wore the necklace of the breezings. The sly one made straight for Odin's hall. He found the terrible one, the father of battle, sitting alone in Valaskelf. His ravens perched on his shoulders and his two wolves lay beside him. Well, said Odin. Loki smirked. I can read your face. Ah, interrupted Loki, his eyes gleaming wickedly. But did you see hers? Whose, said Odin. Did it escape you? Didn't you see it all from Hlidskjalf? What, insisted Odin. Where were you, Odin, when the goddess you love, the goddess you lust after, slept with four dwarves? Enough, shouted Odin. Loki ignored him altogether, and Odin was possessed with such jealousy that he found it impossible not to listen. With unfeigned delight at shaming Freya and angering Odin at the same time, Loki launched into his story. He left out nothing, and he saw no need to add anything. Get that necklace for me, said Odin coldly, when Loki had at last brought Freya home to Asgard. Loki smiled and shook his head. "'You do nothing that is not vile,' cried Odin. "'You set us all at one another's throats. "'Now I set you at her throat. "'Get that necklace!' "'The sly one sniffed. "'You know as well as I, "'indeed surely far better than I, "'that there's no way into that hall against her wishes.' "'Get that necklace!' shouted Odin. "'His face was contorted. "'His one eye was burning.' Until you get it, let me never see your face again. Then Loki looked at the terrible one. Odin's face was a mask now, grim and sinister. The sly one's arrogance turned to cold fear. He recognized the danger. Then Odin's wolves got up and so did Loki. He ran out of the hall, howling. Later that same night, the sly one walked across the shining snowfield to the hall Sesrumnir. Boldly, he made his way up to the door. It was locked. He drew his cloak more closely round him. He shivered as the night wind picked up snow and grazed his face with it. He felt the cold working its way into his body and into his blood. Loki remembered Sif, her locked bedchamber, her shorn, shining hair, his own lips pierced with an awl. He scowled and inspected the door again. The shape-changer shook his head, he muttered the words, and turned himself into a fly. Sesrumnir was so well built that he was still unable to find a way into the hall, a chink between wood and plaster or plaster and turf. He buzzed around the keyhole, but that was no good. He examined the top and the bottom of the door, and they were no good. He flew up to the eaves, and they were no good. Then he flitted from one gable end, and there, at the top, right under the roof, he found an opening with a larger than a needle's eye. Loki, the shape-changer, squirmed and wriggled his way through. He was at large and inside Sesrumnir. After making sure that Freya's daughters and sleeping maids were asleep, 
he flew to Freya's bedside, but the sleeping goddess was wearing the necklace, and its clasp lay under her neck. It was out of sight and out of reach. So Loki changed shape again, this time becoming a flea. Then he amused himself crawling over Freya's breast, across the necklace, and straight up to one cheek. There he sat down. He gathered his strength and stung her pale skin. Freya started. She moaned and turned onto her side and settled again. But now the clasp of the necklace was exposed, just as the shape-changer had intended. As soon as he was certain that Freya was sleeping soundly once more, Loki resumed his own form. He looked swiftly around and then with light fingers released the clasp and gently drew the necklace from Freya's throat. No thief in the Nine Worlds was as nimble and skillful as her. No thief in the Nine Worlds was as nimble and skillful as he, with no movement that was not necessary. And without making a sound, he stole to the hall doors, slid back the bolts, turned the lock, and disappeared into the night. Freya did not wake until morning, and as soon as she opened her eyes, she put her fingers to her throat. She felt the back of her neck. The goddess looked around her. She leapt up and her face colored in anger. When she saw the doors of Sesrumnir were open and had not been forced, she knew that only Loki could have entered the hall and knew that not even he would have risked such an undertaking and such a theft unless Odin himself had sanctioned it. What she did not know and could not fathom was how her secret, her greed and her guilt and her gain had been discovered. Freya hurried to Valaskalf and confronted Odin. Where is that necklace? she demanded. You've debased yourself if you've had any part in this. Odin scowled at Freya. Who are you? he said, to speak of debasement. You've brought shame on yourself and shame on the gods. Out of nothing but sheer greed you sold your body to four foul dwarfs. Where is my necklace? repeated Freya. She stormed at Odin. She took his rigid arm and pressed herself against him. She wept showers of gold. You'll never see it again, said the terrible one, father of battle, unless you agree to one condition. There is only one thing that will satisfy me. Freya looked at Odin quickly and whatever it was that passed through her mind, she bit her tongue. You must stir up hatred. You must stir up war. Find two kings in Midgard and set them at each other's throats. Ensure that they meet only on the battlefield, each of them supported by twenty vassal kings. The father of battle looked grimly at the goddess. And you must use such charms as give new life to corpses. As soon as each warrior is chopped down, bathed in blood, he must stand up unharmed and fight again. Freya stared at Odin. Those are my conditions. Whether they wish it or not, let men rip one another to pieces. Freya inclined her head. Then give me my necklace, she said. The Lay of Thrym
When Thor awoke and reached out to grasp his hammer, it was not there. The hurler leapt up. He tousled and tangled his red beard. His hair bristled as he searched for Mjolnir. Listen, Loki, said Thor. No god in Asgard has seen my hammer. No man in Midgard has seen my hammer. It has been stolen. Then Thor and Loki hurried to Folkvang and into Freya's hall, Sesrumnir. They knew well that if the hammer were not found, it would not be long before the giant stormed Asgard's walls and brought the bright halls of the gods crashing to the earth. "'Will you lend me your falcon skin?' asked Loki, "'so that I can search for Thor's hammer?' "'If it were fashioned of silver,' cried Freya, "'you could use it. I would lend it even if it were spun out of gold.' Then Loki donned the falcon skin. The feathered dress whirred as he climbed into the moving air and left the world of the gods behind him. He flew until Asgard became no more than a bright haze away to the west. He flew as fast as he could until he at last reached the world of the giants. Thrym, king of the frost giants, felt at ease with the world. He had unteased and combed his horse's manes. He was sitting on a green mound, plaiting gold thread, making collars and leashes for his horrible hounds. When the sky traveler saw Thrym, he swooped down beside him. How are things with the gods? said Thrym. How are things with the elves? And what brings you to Jotunheim alone? Things are bad for the gods said Loki. Things are bad for the elves. Have you stolen Thor's hammer? Thrym laughed, and the sound was like the chuckle of broken ice. I've hidden Thor's hammer eight miles deep in the earth. No one is going to touch it unless he brings Freya here to be my bride. Loki grimaced, and the sound of Thrym's freezing laughter followed him as he climbed again into the sky. The feathered dress whirred. He left the world of the giants behind him and flew as fast as he could until at last he returned to the world of the gods. Thor was waiting in the courtyard of Bilskirnir and at once asked the sky traveler, What's in your head and what's in your mouth? Real news or mere nuisance? The thunder god's eyes blazed and it was clear he would brook no nonsense. Stand here and tell me the truth at once. A sitting man forgets his story as often as not, and a man who lies down first lies again afterwards. I bring nuisance and I bring news, said the sly one, the corners of his crooked mouth curling. Thrym, king of the frost giants, has your hammer, and no one is going to touch it unless he brings Freya to be his bride. Then Thor and Loki hurried to Sesrumnir for a second time and found Freya there. Well, my beautiful, said Loki, narrowing his eyes, put on your bridal veil. What? retorted Freya. We two must hurry, answered Loki, grinning. You and I are going to Jotunheim. Thrym, king of the frost giants, has taken a fancy to you. Freya was so angry that the walls of Sesrumnir shuddered. The gold-studded benches started from the floor. Then Freya snorted, 
Her face became fiery. Her breasts rose and fell. Her neck muscles bulged. Then suddenly the marvelous necklace of the breezings burst apart. The wing snapped and a shower of precious stones rolled about the hall. How would it look if I went with you to Jotunheim? demanded Freya. Everyone would say the same. A whore, just a whore. Loki raised his eyebrows. Thor sniffed and smirked and shifted from foot to foot and did everything except look Freya in the eye. Go away, said Freya, both of you. Then every god headed for Gladsheim, the hall with the silver thatch, to sit in solemn council and discuss how to recover Mjolnir. The goddesses joined them there. The watchman Heimdall had left Himmensbjorg and the trembling rainbow bridge. Like the other Vanir, he could read the future. The white god said, Let us swaddle Thor, he paused and looked around. Swaddle Thor in the bridal veil. There was a moment of silence and then a howl of laughter from the assembled gods and goddesses. Heimdall waited until the uproar had died down, and then he went on. Let us repair the necklace of the breezings and secure it round his... his pretty neck. Once again, Gladsheim erupted and Thor looked across at Heimdall with profound distaste. But the white god was unabashed. He must be decked as befits any bride. A bunch of jingling keys must hang from his waist. And he must wear a becoming dress. As long a dress as possible. We mustn't forget to pin well-wrought brooches on her, on his breast. This care for detail delighted the gods and goddesses, and they also saw the force of Heimdall's argument. And he'll need a charming cap, concluded Heimdall in a sing-song voice. A charming cap to crown it all. Thor scowled. You'll all mock me and call me unmanly if I put on a bridal veil, he said. Then Loki, the son of Laufey, called out insolently, Silence, Thor, there's no argument. Giants will live in Asgard if we don't retrieve your hammer. So the gods and goddesses swaddled Thor in a bridal veil. They repaired the necklace of the breezings and clasped it around his neck. They hung a bunch of jingling keys from his waist, and he wore a becoming dress down to his knees. They pinned well-wrought brooches on his breast, they crowned it all with a charming cap. I'll be your maidservant, warbled Loki. We two will hurry to Jotunheim. The Thunderer's goats were rounded up and driven to Bill Skirnir. There they were harnessed and impatiently bucked and wrestled with their halters. Gaping fissures opened in the fells, flames scorched the earth, and Thor, the son of Odin, galloped with Loki to Jotunheim. She will come, shouted Thrym in a frenzy. She's coming. Stir up your great stumps. Spread straw on the benches. They're bringing Freya, Njord's daughter from Noatun, to be my bride. Thrym strode up and down his chilly hall, checking the arrangements. Then he sat on a bench and said to himself, I've cattle in my stables with horns of gold. I've jet-black oxen, beasts to gladden the heart of any man. I've piles of precious stones and mounds of silver and gold. Thrym's thoughts evaporated in the cold air and he sighed. I've had everything I wanted. Everything except Freya. 
When the travelers from Asgard arrived at Thrym's Hall in the early evening, they were welcomed with great ceremony. The same giant servants who had spread straw on the benches now served up a fine supply of good food and drink. Thrym ushered Thor in his bridal veil to the feasting table. With all the courtesy he could command, he pointed out the fine fare drawn from earth, sea, and air alike in her honor. Then he led his intended bride to one high seat, and himself sat in the other. Loki promptly ensconced himself next to Thor on the other side. Thor felt hungry. He devoured an entire ox, and followed that with eight salmon. Then he scooped up and scoffed all the delicacies set apart for the women. And to round things off, he downed three horns of mead. Thrym watched this feat with growing surprise and anticipation. Who has ever seen a bride with such hunger, such thirst, he exclaimed. I've never met a woman who took such huge mouthfuls or who drank so much mead. The subtle bridesmaid sitting at Thor's side took it upon herself to answer Thrym. Freya has not eaten for these past eight nights. So wild was her desire for her wedding night. Thrym leaned forward and peered under the veil. He could not wait to kiss her. The giant king was so startled that he leapt back the whole length of the hall. Her eyes, he shouted. Why are Freya's eyes so fearsome? They're like burning coals. The subtle bridesmaid sitting at Thor's side took it upon herself to answer Thrym. Freya has not slept for these past eight nights. So wild was her desire for her wedding night. Now Thrym's luckless sister walked up to the bride and bridesmaid, and she was not half-hearted about asking for a dowry. If you want my love, she said, and my loyalty, give me the rings of red gold on your fingers. Bring forth the hammer, called the king of the giants. Bring forward the hammer to hallow the bride. Put Mjolnir between her knees now, so that Var will hear our marriage oath and give us her blessing. The Thunder God's unsparing heart sang and danced when he saw his hammer. As soon as it was placed between his knees, he snatched it up in his mighty grasp, swept off his veil, and stood revealed as the god Thor, the Hurler. Thrym leapt up from his high seat, and his companions leapt up from their benches. Thor's eyes were as red as his beard. He glared at the company of giants and growled. Then he raised his hammer, took one massive step towards Thrym, and crushed his skull. Thor showed no mercy. He felled all the other giants and giant women at that bridal feast. The hall floor was strewn with a host of bodies. Thrym's luckless sister had dared ask for gold rings, but the iron hammer rang on her skull. And so Thor, the son of Odin, won back his hammer.